Well, good afternoon, friends. Happy Wednesday. Welcome aboard. Rob Breckenridge with you. This is Afternoons on QR Calgary here on this uh, 1st of November. A lot to get to here this afternoon. 403-974-8255. 974-TALK. Uh, I do want to start with some of the latest developments of what's happening in the Middle East, the conflict in Gaza. Uh, the Prime Minister earlier today weighing in on developments there. We, of course, continue to unequivocally condemn Hamas's abhorrent terrorism and Israel has the right to defend itself. But the price of justice cannot be the continued suffering of all Palestinian civilians. We are deeply concerned by uh, the catastrophic impact on the population in Gaza, particularly on children which is why we are calling for humanitarian aid and water and fuel to flow into Gaza. We're calling on humanitarian pauses to allow that to happen. We're calling on the liberation of hostages, on aid to flow in, and on uh, Canadians and their families to get out of Gaza through the Rafah crossing. We are hearing positive things. We are hearing positive news around movement at the Rafah crossing, and we are trying to encourage and make sure that more people, that indeed all foreign nationals, are Okay, so it sounds like maybe Canada's position is starting to evolve somewhat here. And uh, no doubt, look, this conflict uh, has been and will be a messy one. Uh, as Israel increases its incursions into Gaza to root out Hamas, an organization that, of course, hides within the civilian population. Yesterday, there was a strike on Hamas infrastructure. Israel says it took out a top Hamas leader, one of the uh, architects of the October 7th attacks, and took out a number of other Hamas leadership individuals as well. Uh, destroyed some infrastructure, too. Now, there are reports of civilian casualties associated with that strike, but they vary wildly. One report yesterday suggested over 400 were killed. And yet a report today suggests that around 50 were killed. So it's unclear what the impact of that was, but no doubt this conflict is having an impact on the civilian population in Gaza, which really has nowhere to go. Uh, so that complicates the situation. No doubt Israel has a right to defend itself. Uh, and no doubt uh, that Israel is having to work around the reality uh, of Hamas entrenching itself within a civilian population. Now, there's another element to all of this as well. And it's, it speaks to the prospects for peace. As the British Foreign Secretary tweeted today, uh, how can there be peace when Hamas is committed to the eradication of Israel? And linking to a video that's uh, emerged from a week ago was uh, Ghazi Hamad of the Hamas Political Bureau being interviewed on LBC television in Lebanon. He says in part, quote, we must teach Israel a lesson. We will do this again and again. The Al-Aqsa flood is just the first time. There will be a second, a third, a fourth, because we have the determination, the resolve and the, capa- uh, the capabilities to fight. He goes on to say the occupation must come to an end. The host says occupation where? In the Gaza Strip. The Hamas spokesman says, no, I'm talking about all the Palestinian lands. The interviewer says, does that mean the annihilation of Israel? The answer, yes, of course. So Hamas is saying that the October 7th attacks will be repeated over and over again. And that the goal is the annihilation of Israel. 
Is, is there even the prospect of peace here with such an organization? Well, joining us uh, for some thoughts on how this is all transpiring, what to expect in the days and weeks ahead, uh, someone who is uh, monitoring the situation closely has been on the ground uh, near the Gaza border this week. Uh, Colonel Richard Kemp is a retired British Army uh, officer. Uh, served from 1977 to 2006, commanded British forces in Afghanistan. Colonel Kemp, so great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to join you. Uh, what's your sense of, of where things are, are headed in terms of the uh, the, the ground uh, operations uh, on the part of the IDF uh, in Gaza? What, what do you expect to see in the coming days? Well, I think we can expect to see some pretty heavy fighting. We've already seen um, significant ground combat with I, 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 as I understand it, a large number of Hamas terrorists killed by the IDF on the ground uh, and rocket launchers and anti-tank missile launchers destroyed. And unfortunately as well, some Israeli soldiers, I think about 10 to 15 Israeli soldiers have been reported killed so far. Um, but I think this is just the beginning of what will probably be quite a lengthy offensive. Uh, and of course, the biggest challenges, two major challenges the IDF face, one is to is to deal with the tunnel complex, which uh, in which Hamas essentially um, used uh, for their soldiers, uh, their their terrorists, I beg your pardon, and their mm -hmm. commanders to uh, to operate from. Um, very very hard to fight in those tunnels. Um, and secondly, the hostages, of course, you know, over 200 hostages being held, uh, and a priority for the IDF is to rescue them. That is going to be very very difficult for them to do. Right. I mean, you know, urban warfare is is very difficult at the, the best of times. Here we have a situation where the enemy has entrenched itself amongst the civilian population, has an extensive infrastructure basically below, beneath that civilian population, and, and has, you know, f fairly significant capabilities uh, in terms of its its fighters, in terms of its its weaponry. So what kind of challenges does that add, that add to what the IDF is attempting to do here? Well, it makes it very difficult for them. Of course, a three-week, very intensive air campaign that's taken place by the IDF over Gaza will have significantly uh, written down a lot of their capability, a lot of their capability. And, of course, something around 1,500 of their, what they call elite fighters, were killed inside Israel uh, three weeks ago when they carried out the massacre in, in Israel. Um, so they've already had a lot of damage done to their fighting capability, but that still leaves a lot left. And and so fighting in this terrain, uh, over this ground, and, and, and I think, you know, almost worst of all, the fact that there are still so many civilians in North Gaza, some of whom were unable to leave, some of whom were prevented from leaving by Hamas. These are uh, people who have suffered a lot already and are being used by Hamas as human shields. And so for the IDF to try and kill as many Hamas terrorists as they can while trying to avoid killing innocent civilians is very, very difficult. But it's something that the IDF are well practiced at and you know, are well trained at doing. So I'm, I'm personally optimistic that, uh, that the IDF will win this fight. It might take some considerable time, but I don't think there's much doubt about who's going to come out victorious. The... The, the biggest challenge, or not the biggest challenge, I've already, I've already mentioned several big challenges, mm -hmm. but one of the bigger challenges that the IDF has is, is international opinion. And that, that obviously that, you know, you could argue is distraction going on around the world, but for Israel, um, in particular, 
American perspective is very important. And I, I, I have a, a certain amount of fear that the Americans will, at some point, as the situation gets worse and worse, pressure the Israelis to stop their attack against Hamas. That would be a devastating situation, which would be, it would, it would amount effectively to defeat of Israel if they weren't able to destroy Hamas. Right. I mean, you know, it's one thing to talk about, you know, a humanitarian pause to allow aid to get in or civilians to get out. But, you know, the you know, the talk of a ceasefire, as some have called for. Is there any circumstance as it stands right now where where a ceasefire would be at all realistic or, or warranted? I don't think so. I mean, for, for one thing, I don't think Hamas is not interested in a ceasefire. They might they might uh, do it on a temporary basis in order to to lick their wounds, reconstitute themselves and fight again. But for Israel, a ceasefire would effectively mean withdrawing back behind their own borders with Gaza uh, and, and le leaving Hamas in a position where it could consolidate itself, reconstitute and be prepared to fire more rockets. Over 7,000, nearly 8,000 rockets have been fired in the last three weeks into Israel's civilian population. Many of them have come into the area of Tel Aviv, where I am at the moment. Uh, including some that have got through the Iron Dome and and hit uh, residential buildings, so that that would that that situation would then be allowed to continue. And what those people who are calling for a ceasefire are effectively saying to Israel is, you cannot defend your own population; you must stop defending them. So it would be, in my view, it would be a catastrophic mistake. I think, as far as humanitarian aid is concerned. Uh, there, there is a certain amount of humanitarian aid getting in, not a massive amount, but a certain amount. Mm -hmm. But again, Israel has to be very careful to to control what's coming in as much as it can, because the last thing Israel needs is for humanitarian aid to be used to replenish its enemies that it's trying to destroy. In other words, Hamas and the other terrorist groups there. And, and no country that's at war in this circumstance has an absolute requirement to allow in humanitarian aid if it's going to assist its enemy. Well, it, it is curious. I mean, for all the claims, you know, that, that Gaza is completely cut off, how is it that Hamas seems to have, you know, this vast arsenal of rockets, uh, all the fuel they need uh, to, to continue their campaign? It certainly seems as though Hamas has been able to obtain what it needs. That's not making its way down to the people, though. You're absolutely right. And and the, 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 the difficulty that Israel's had over many years is is that it's been obliged to allow in a great deal of humanitarian aid for very good reason in some circumstances, but a lot of it has been exploited. For example, you know, th construction material like water pipes, cement, this sort of thing has been taken by Hamas and used not for the benefit of its population, but to use to construct weapons and attack tunnels to to kill Israelis. And and the biggest the biggest hole in the uh, in the defences that Israel has against. Hamas in Gaza is the Egyptian border. Let's not forget that uh, Gaza doesn't just border on Israel, it borders on Egypt as well. And it's right. very permeable, a very permeable border through which most of the weapons have flown. The challenge in defeating Hamas, you mentioned your, your experience in Afghanistan and uh, the efforts uh, against the Taliban or even dealing with local warlords. Is any of that comparable to the situation Israel now faces in Hamas? Or what are the, some of the unique challenges Israel is going to face in uprooting and, and defeating a, a group like Hamas? Yeah, I mean, I, I spent a period of time many years ago fighting in Afghanistan alongside. I was a huge pleasure for me to be 
working and fighting alongside the Canadian Armed Forces there who did a phenomenal job in Afghanistan, a really phenomenal job. Um, but it's, a, it's quite a different circumstance. The enemy is not dissimilar. The enemy uses similar human shield tactics, embedding themselves in the local population, using obviously concealed IED sniper positions, similar to Afghanistan. But Afghanistan was a massive country. Um, and and, and, and the, the extent of our intelligence against the Taliban was relatively limited. And the Taliban and the other jihadists in Afghanistan also had a huge benefit, one of which, a number of benefits, one of which was a safe haven in Pakistan from which they could be armed, from which they could take safe haven and, uh, and launch attacks. Gaza is a bit different. Gaza is a tiny area. Israel has very, very comprehensive intelligence coverage of Gaza. That may sound a bit at odds with the surprise that was inflicted on Israel three weeks ago, but that was a kind of strategic surprise at the tactical level. I think Israel is unrivaled in the amount of intelligence it has, which enables it to carry out precise targeting of terrorist leaders and terrorist infrastructure. And at the moment, anyway, Hamas does not really have anything comparable to the Taliban safe haven in Pakistan. Egypt is opposed to Hamas. Egypt will not provide safe haven for Hamas. So I think that those, you know, those differences mean that although there are great, great challenges, I think uh, it, it makes Israel's prospects of a victory, a severe victory of, of against Hamas compared to the West's failures in Afghanistan. Uh, I think it, it kind of contrasts with those two things and will enable Israel to, to crush Hamas. Now, crushing Hamas in Gaza is not the same as defeating Hamas overall. Mm -hmm. We know that it's an ideology with its leadership in Turkey and in Qatar. And we know that, it, that even if it's defeated inside Gaza, that's not the end of the story. It's not. Uh, there, there are conversations happening about what uh, post-Hamas Gaza looks like. Uh, Bloomberg News uh, reporting today that uh, two U.S. senators confirming there have been some talks about a possible multinational force or peacekeepers or some kind of temporary U.N. governance. You know, the defeat of Hamas in Gaza would create a void. Uh, how do you see that possibly being addressed? Or is it too soon to say, do you think? Well, there are various options, but I think whatever options exist, I think there's the, the IDF has little choice other than to maintain a long-term presence in Gaza, even if it doesn't end up running Gaza. Let's say one of the things you've mentioned of maybe a UN, some kind of UN umbrella administration to attempt to reconstruct it um, might well go ahead. We don't know that, and I don't suppose anyone knows yet. But even if that happens, I don't see the IDF being able to completely leave Gaza from the security point of view, because you've, you, you're facing a a population that was already vehemently opposed to Israel, hated Israel, uh, and, and will hate Israel even more now as a result of this conflict. And that will be exploited by jihadists led. I mean, we know we know that Hamas, Islamic Jihad, are proxies of Iran. Right. And Iran will obviously, if it sees its proxies destroyed now, will do everything it can to rebuild uh, the successors to them. And so the IDF has to stay there, I think, I don't know how long for, but it has to stay there to, to try and prevent that. Yeah, long road ahead. Uh, much more at your website, richard-camp.com. Uh, Colonel Camp, thanks again for your insight and appreciate you making some time for us here today.
My pleasure. Thank you. All the best. Uh, there you go. That's uh, Colonel Richard Kemp, a retired British Army officer, uh, served in Afghanistan, as mentioned, commanded British forces there, and has been on the ground uh, in Israel near the Gaza border, uh, following this situation very closely. Again, much more from him, richard-kemp.com. Well, there's a, a new book out that uh, tackles a lot of these myths head on. Dr. Christopher Lavos is a cardiologist, master's degree in epidemiology, and is the author of a new book. It's called Does Coffee Cause Cancer? And Eight More Myths About the Food We Eat. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is the aforementioned Dr. Christopher Lavos. Uh, Christopher, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. No, thank you for having me. Uh, so from your perspective and what you see out there and what you hear from people, I mean, what convinced you that, that this book was necessary? Well, I mean, there were a few reasons that going to, that went into the book. One, I mean, I really felt like I just had too much free time on my hands. <laughs> and that? I yeah. really needed to dive into a year-long project that was going to take forever. Um, but also, I mean, a lot of these issues, just they just keep coming up over and over again. Like, I've had patients. That is one example. It really sticks in my mind. I had this one patient who had just had cardiac surgery, and I was seeing him for his post-operative follow-up. And I asked him how things were going. He goes, you know, I'm doing pretty well. I'm taking my medication. I'm trying to walk every day. But I find it really hard to drink two glasses of red wine every day because I really just don't like wine. And I was like, no, sir, please, you don't, you don't have to drink wine if you don't have to, if you, right. know, if you don't want to. This is not, it's not health food. It's not medicine. But a lot of these ideas, despite the fact that they've been, you know, largely set aside by the scientific community, really do persist and it's because people see you know 60 minute reports about you know the french paradox and red wine being good for you or i don't know if you remember headlines of you know a hamburger is just as bad as a cigarette uh that was from a few years back or you know headlines that you know salt is good for you now or that eggs are you know good for you and bad for you and then good for you again so i think people are confused and so you kind of have to address these things but I think it's also important to explain to people why these myths became what they are. And that's what this book tries to do. It really tries to explain why, like the inception behind these myths, why they became popular, and what are the scientific underpinnings that lead to it. Like, what are the reasons why people want thought that coffee caused cancer or that, you know, chocolate could be brain food. Like, why did people think these things? And if you read this book, you'll get a much better understanding as to, as to why these false headlines end up being generated. Yeah, because it, it all comes from somewhere. And so it's interesting to, to trace back to see where some of this comes from. Uh, I'm sipping a coffee right now. So why don't we start there? Uh, you know, that in California, there was a court that ruled that coffee needed a warning label and maybe things kind of snowballed from there. But where, where did some of these coffee claims come from, first of all? Well, they come from a bunch of different sources, and one of the big ones was what you just mentioned, that, you know, there was a civil case in California, and a group of individuals whose origins was always a little bit murky, and it's kind of somewhat unclear as to what their, what their ultimate objective was, but they took a number of these coffee manufacturers to court, so like Starbucks, a lot of these big chains, and took them to court because coffee contained a chemical called acrylamide. Now... Coffee has always contained acrylamide because anytime you roast or cook something, you generate a small amount of this chemical. In large quantities, when you use it in industrial processes, yes, it can be carcinogenic. But in, you know, in the tiny, you know, minuscule quantities that you find in food, it's of no consequence. And it's always been there. It's part of the natural cooking process. 
But there is a law in California that says if your food or drink contains even a microscopic amount of something that is found to be carcinogen, you have to put a warning label on your product. And so Mm -hmm. they took these companies to court saying you don't have a warning label on your cup of coffee that says, you know, may cause cancer. And a lot of these companies settled out of court. Um, And so you wonder if the motivation for this lawsuit wasn't financial, but Starbucks actually said, no, we're going to fight this. And they went to court and there was a judge and the judge ruled that no, in the state of California, coffee cups or places that sell coffee need to have a warning label that says coffee causes cancer. And that prompted a whole different review from the state board in California to ultimately say, no, of course not. Coffee is actually fine. Yeah. But this idea has just, you know, it, it, it takes a one little thing and then the story just sort of snowballs from there. That's interesting. And, you know, looking at that, some of these different myths that you explore in the book, it's, it's funny how it kind of comes down on both sides. And maybe some of this is driven by fear in, in both respects. But the idea that, you know, something's bad for you, you better stay away for it, from it. Or, or something is so good for you, you know, you'd be crazy if you weren't, uh, you know, taking it on a daily basis. It's, is one side or the other more common, do you find? I think the fear, the danger aspect of it is certainly there. So mm-hmm. when it comes to food, there's, again, you, no shortage of claims of, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that. There, there is a concept that's out there that's called orthorexia. So the idea that there is a right way to eat. And right. one of the things I hope you get out of this book is that there isn't the right way to eat. You know, you can eat whatever you want. And especially when we talk about alcohol, because I get, I get a lot of this in my clinical practice about, you know, you, know, you really shouldn't drink that much alcohol. It's not that great for you. Um, first of all, you know, alcohol increases your risk of cancer. It has a lot of sugar in it. It makes you gain weight and it causes birth defects. If I told you that about any other food, you wouldn't want to eat it. That being said, though, if you want to drink alcohol, you can drink alcohol in the same way that you can eat ice cream and eat potato chips. You just can't convince yourself that it's good for you. And so it's really that. It's really sort of getting people away from this idea that there is a right or a wrong way to eat food. There isn't. We know what's generally healthy. We know what generally isn't. And it's really sort of clearing up a lot of this fluff, a lot of this confusion, which just, one, stresses people out, two, makes people confused and actually makes people tune out. So when you have a real issue that you need to discuss, a lot of people are like, I'm not going to pay attention to this. Six months from now, they may be saying something different. Right. Yeah, it fuels a lot of cynicism. That's an important point. In terms of some of the myths about things that we are really supposed to, really should be uh, consuming on the regular, and there's a couple here that kind of overlap. Vitamin D and vitamin C, of course, as we yeah. head into the winter months, you know, we're not outside as much. We're getting less vitamin D. So there's those questions about whether to supplement that. But also vitamin C, you know, going back to, to the you know, hundreds of years ago when scurvy was a thing, but we've kind of got this notion now that vitamin C can ward off illness or ward off colds. So what, what about those two vitamins? So vitamin C is a fascinating one, and it's not by accident that it's the first chapter in the book. Um, a lot of people believe that vitamin C can help you fight the common cold or prevent you from getting sick. Right. Um, that's not true. I can tell you that right now that's not true. If you look at the sum total of the evidence, it's not true. The reason why people are able to make this claim is that of all the studies that are negative, there is a tiny, tiny subset of patients for whom vitamin C is beneficial if you take it on a regular basis. And I am prepared to wager a very large sum of money now that you could not tell me what the th- what those three groups of patients are. And you could guess right. for a thousand years. <laughs> and you, feel free to guess if you want to. I, yeah, I have so no idea. <laughs> so the three groups of people who benefit from vitamin C 
are Canadian soldiers on subarctic military exercises, okay. ultra marathon runners in South Africa, and children attending a ski school in the Alps. Wow. It's and it's and I highlight those studies because when you actually hear it stated like baldly like that, you come to appreciate the absurdity of the situation and you realize and every chapter also has a statistical point that I'm trying to make and the one with vitamin C is this is just random noise, right? If you do 100 studies and 90 of them come back negative, but 10 of them come back positive, well, those positive 10 studies were just flukes. They were just random statistical noise. And when you have groupings like this that don't make sense, where nothing plausibly links together Canadian soldiers, kids and skiing and ultra marathon runners, you realize that these are just random associations. And so Within each chapter, although we're talking about food, you're also going to learn a little bit about science and realize why did the vitamin C stuff become what it is? It's because people fail to appreciate that these positive studies were, were not relevant when you have all these other negative ones. Like you, you'll hear the story about the Canadian soldiers who had a, a benefit vitamin C, ignoring the fact that they did the same study in U.S. Marines and found no benefit. So what about the other vitamin? What about vitamin D? Yeah, so it's, vitamin D has often been referred to as the cure for everything because yeah. there was a time when people genuinely, genuinely believed that it would cure heart disease, cancer, and everything. And there have been a slew of negative studies. I mean, I think 2017 or 2018 was the year where it was just study after study after study for vitamin D came out. And, you know, it had a bit of a boost in popularity again during COVID where people were claiming that vitamin D would treat COVID. It doesn't. It was tried. It didn't work. But that's the thing is like, you know, you have all these preliminary studies where people are like, ah, the people who are vitamin D deficient tend to do worse with cancer, heart disease, what have you. But when you actually give them vitamin D, they don't get better. And that's because people didn't appreciate the underlying reason is yet, yeah, they were vitamin D deficient for a reason. Maybe they were sick to begin with and they don't go, didn't go outside as much. And of course, if you don't go outside as much, you're not exposed to as much UV light. Therefore, you don't manufacture vitamin D in your skin. Or maybe your diet is not as good. That's why you're vitamin D deficient. So failing to acknowledge that there are reasons why people were vitamin D deficient, that likely explained why they had poor outcomes, that it wasn't the vitamin D deficiency itself. So as you say, I mean, you know, it's about tackling some specific myths and where this comes from. But it's also, I think, you know, part of what you're doing here is to try to equip people with the tools, I guess, the, the critical thinking to better navigate uh, all of these things, because who knows what, what the next myth is going to be. And that's it, is that when you have the skills, you become a much better consumer of the scientific literature. And so there's a plot device to this book, because this isn't a standard scientific book. Um, it's written as a novel. I, and I sort of tell people, when people, people ask me, when I told people I was writing a book, it's like, so are you writing a romance novel? And I was like, yes, technically I am. <laughs> this is, you can read this book as a narrative, because it is a story where, you know, person X goes here, does there, speaks to this person. But within those conversations, you are going to get the stories about food and, you know, explore why the myths are the way they are. And then people who are interested can read the appendix and look at the actual scientific studies. But the point is is to, to hear it, to read it as a story, and understand the general concepts behind it, because the general co concepts can be reapplied in many different scenarios. So it's not, you know, it's a book about food, but it's not a diet book. It's a love story. Yeah, there you go. Uh, the book is called Does Coffee Cause Cancer? And Eight More Myths About the Food We Eat. Uh, Dr. Christopher Labas, thanks again for joining us here this afternoon. Much appreciate it. 
My pleasure. Take care. All the best. There you go. Dr. Christopher Labos, the book, uh, Does Coffee Cause Cancer? And Eight More Myths About the Food We Eat. So it's about food. It's about these myths. It's about where these myths come from, the sloppy science, he says, that perpetu- uh, perpetuates some of these mis- uh, misconceptions about food. Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Wednesday afternoon. You can reach us, 403-974-TALK. That's 974-8255. We'll get to more of your phone calls, your texts coming up later this hour. A few other things I want to get to. Off the top of this hour, though, the federal government, uh, and this actually goes back to last year, they introduced Bill C-27. And this is pretty sweeping legislation. It's called the Digital Charter Implementation Act. So it involves private sector privacy law. Uh, It also introduces new regulations around the design of, the development of, the use of AI, artificial intelligence. So it does cover a lot. And look, these are issues that that certainly I think we need to grapple with uh, and make sure that we're striking the right balance. A new coalition has been launched uh, with regard to some of these issues, and specifically the use of facial recognition technology. Uh, The Bill 27 falls well short in this area, that there are no clear definitions. And furthermore, too many exemptions uh, that could leave facial recognition technology virtually unregulated. So a number of prominent civil society groups and scholars have come together. It's called the Right to Your Face Coalition. Uh, says new government legislation falls short, could be dangerous for Canadians, uh, and that we need some real action on this front. Joining us uh, for more, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sharon Polsky, President of the Privacy and Access Council of Canada. Sharon, great to have you with us here. Welcome back to the program. Thanks. Good to be back, Rob. Uh, So facial recognition technology, uh, what's the concern there, and are we seeing it becoming more commonly used? Well, that's part of the problem is that we don't see it. And yes, it has become very widespread. Uh, Anybody who goes into an airport, crosses the border, goes into a grocery store, never mind law enforcement, retailers are using facial recognition. You might recall a couple of years ago where somebody in Chinook Mall noticed on one of the information kiosks some code, and it turned out that the owner of the shopping center was using facial detection. They said it wasn't facial recognition. They also said it wasn't them. It was whoever was advertising, whoever on the advertising board. Doesn't matter. It was being used on you and me and everybody who went into that company's shopping centers across Canada, unbeknownst to us. And they had no signage. There was no warning. And even even if there is, I mean, if you have to go to the professional building, does that mean you automatically must give consent? You didn't even get a chance to. So it's right. in use everywhere, and nobody knows it. So it's also, it's about the consent. It's also, I guess, about how that information is used, right? Uh, who has access to it? How long is it kept for? Are there any rules or regulations around the use of this data? No, Rob. At this point, it's really unregulated in Canada. Some other countries have finally started... Uh, The EU a few years ago wanted a complete ban on the type of databases that Clearview AI uses. And Clearview said, we're an American company. Thank you for your opinion and continue doing your business. Uh, Other places have called for a moratorium on its use. When I spoke at a previous uh, parliamentary committee on the use of facial recognition, they were very concerned. I mean, some of the MPs really do get that there is a problem 
Um, unfortunately, Bill C-27 doesn't say anything about it, and there are so many carve-outs uh, for artificial intelligence use. Uh, government is able to use it under C-27, the Part 3 that talks about artificial intelligence. It regulates the use of AI in the hands of the private sector, the private sector that hasn't been deputized to do the government's work for it. And of course, under access legislation, if my company does work for the government, it now falls under the government. So I can't just provide you with access to the information. Mm -hmm. I have to answer first to the government. So it gets shielded. Should this be considered biometric information? Is this on par with, like, fingerprints, for example? Oh, absolutely, because each face is unique. Yeah. And whether the company or the government says it's not your face that we're collecting, it's a mathematical representation, yes, it is. But it's still unique, and it uniquely identifies my face and makes it very easy for my face to be tracked and my movements and my associations. Under our charter, my associations and yours are supposed to be untouched. The government is not supposed to monitor whether you and I meet at a coffee shop or at a, a movie theater or anywhere else. With this sort of technology, it's all too easy, and you can't change. I mean, you, you, if you watch a, a 007 movie, yeah, you can have surgery and change your face. <laughs> Most right. people don't go to that point. So our face, our fingerprints... Our gait, our heartbeat, the irises of our eyes, our physical features. And this is what I've just listed. These are different types of biometrics that already are being monitored from afar. It's, there's no touching. You don't know it's happening. It is being monitored. We don't know by who. We don't know where the information goes. We're often not allowed to find out if we get the idea that uh, it might have been collected, I'd like to know how or who, by who. More often than not, we'll be told it's a matter of national security, we can't tell you. So how does Bill C-27 address this? It doesn't. It really doesn't. The, uh, the Part 3, the ADA, Artificial Intelligence Data Act, should be on its own, but instead they've lump that together with the update of the federal private sector privacy law, PIPITA, and that's part one. And part two is to create a piece of legislation that will see the uh, creation of a new tribunal and bureaucracy to oversee and adjudicate the decisions of the Privacy Commissioner of Canada. Uh, and that'll be unique in, amongst data commissioners around the world. Um, but the third part that will speak to artificial intelligence, it seems, as, as Jimbo Silly said yesterday in committee, it's as if they built the shoe first, now they're trying to figure out how to put the sock on. They haven't defined very, very critical terms. What is a highly sensitive AI? We don't know. Um, the, the minister was before the committee a couple of weeks ago, and they said, we're studying this bill, but the fine points, the regulations, haven't been issued yet. So could we please, you've been talking about this for a long time, months and years, could we please have the regulations so we can study them? And he said, well, uh, we, we, we could consider adding this in, and we could consider perhaps adding that in, and I'll get it to you. Oh, I'm sorry, Rob, but for me to say I might consider perhaps adding it in isn't 
not something I would consider to be a solid commitment. It's a possible maybe if a higher priority doesn't come along. So there's no assurance, and Ada really doesn't speak to anything yet because there's no substance to the bill, except that it's going to be controlled, but we're not quite sure how, by who, or what's going to be allowed, and they're going to pass it and then put in regulations. So is this about amending C-27, or does it need to go further than that? Oh, I wouldn't be the first one to say they need to start over. Yeah. This is a remake of uh, C-11, I think it was, in the last session. And there's been other attempts, nothing very substantive, nothing serious. Uh, But comparing this one to the last version, this one, I think, is much worse for privacy. I mean, you look at the name of it, uh, and and when you think that... uh, the definition determines the outcome. The the act itself is called the Consumer Privacy Protection Act. We are consumers. Yeah. We are not individuals with fundamental privacy rights. The idea of declaring privacy to be a fundamental human right is not yet on the books in Canada. The UN declared it back in, what, 1948? Other countries have adopted that and embedded it in their constitutions. In Canada, we do not yet have a declared fundamental right to privacy. We need it. Yeah. Well, much more the website, uh, the coalition. It's righttoyourface.ca. That's the number two, righttoyourface.ca. Sharon, thank you so much for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All the best. Sharon Polsky, president of the Privacy and Access Council of Canada, part of this coalition, righttoyourface.ca is the website uh, where they see Bill uh, C-27 is badly missing the mark and why we need uh, a a much more serious approach when it comes to protecting privacy rights around the use of facial recognition technology. It's becoming more common and more sophisticated, and there really aren't a lot of guardrails. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.